0: Well, the title of this morning's message is Preserved and Persevering. One of the great and comforting realities of our salvation is that once God has saved us, he will never abandon us or cast us off. Once in Christ, always in Christ. If you are truly saved, you are truly saved forever And I want to reach back this morning to verse 6 in Philippians 1. I'd invite you to turn there. It was all I could do to press through it in the initial preaching of this section, and I want to return to it because it is one of the most well-known and best beloved verses in all the Bible. Every Christian knows the instability of their own life. We know what it is, don't we, to to fail in the face of temptation. We know what it is to wrestle with doubt. We know what it is in the frailty of our flesh to think at times that surely God is going to cast us off. We know the fickle nature of our own commitments to things and how we can grow disinterested in a relatively brief amount of time We are weak and we are wandering, and we know this not just theoretically and because the Bible teaches it, we know it experientially. As the hymn writer said, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. And all of us have known this at some level in our lives. All of us at times are left with a concern as to will I really be saved in the end And that's a great strategy of the evil one, really, in the lives of believers, to derail them, to get them introspective, to get their nose firmly placed in their belly button, consumed with self-examination. I tell you this morning, God wants you to know that you know him. Christ prayed that very thing. This is eternal life, that they may know you. The one true God and the Son whom he sent. God has given us plenty in Scripture that tells us that we should have an assurance of our salvation. That's vital. That's important to us. It's important for a healthy Christian life to know that you're in the kingdom of God, that you are an adopted son or daughter of the King, that you have a future, that God is faithful. So it's no wonder that Christians throughout the ages have treasured this verse. Let's read it together. For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. In this simple verse, Paul has articulated really what is the biblical doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. And that name the perseverance of the saints can be a little bit misleading. It's got to be carefully delineated because the doctrine is not so much about what the saints do in persevering, but what God does in preserving his saints. Strictly speaking, it is God who perseveres in the life of the believer bringing to completion the great work of salvation that he initiated. Salvation, as the scriptures teach, is of the Lord. It is he who initiates our salvation. It is he who accomplishes it through Christ. And it is he who will bring you all the way to heaven. Salvation for the believer in Christ Jesus is the most secure thing in the universe. Why? Because it is rooted and grounded in the character and will of a faithful and sovereign God. It is rooted and it is grounded in the character and will of a faithful and sovereign, omnipotent God. In other words, God wants you to be saved. He wants to bring your salvation to its appointed and glorious end. And not only does he want to, but he, unlike us, has the power to actually accomplish it. Beyond that, as Jeff prayed this morning, God is faithful and he has promised us to complete what he has started in us. And he is always faithful to fulfill those promises. He is, in fact, a God who cannot lie. The teaching of the Bible is crystal clear. God always finishes what he starts. So what is this doctrine of the perseverance of the saints? It is a doctrine that teaches that those who are truly regenerate, that is born again, in saving union with Christ cannot lose their salvation. Let me say it again. The doctrine teaches that those who are truly regenerate in saving union with Christ cannot lose their salvation. Now, I want to give you some more formal definitions. I'm going to put them up on the screen here for you. This first one from a systematic theology, biblical doctrine by MacArthur and Mayhew, and I quote, all of those who are truly born of the Spirit and united to Christ by faith are kept secure in him by God's power, and thus will persevere in faith until they go to be with Christ in death. From the Westminster Confession of Faith, they whom God hath accepted in his beloved, that is Christ, effectually called and sanctified by his spirit, can neither totally nor finally fall away from the state of grace but shall certainly preserve therein to the end and be eternally saved Wayne Grudem has written a systematic theology and I quote all those who are truly born again will be kept by God's power and will persevere as Christians until the end of their lives and that only Those who persevere until the end have been truly born again. Now, let me summarize the salient points of those definitions. Genuine believers are kept secure in Christ by God's power. We are preserved by God. Genuine believers also will persevere in faith until they go to be with Christ in death. Those stumbling, genuine believers cannot totally or finally fall away from the state of grace. It is a state of grace in which you stand. You didn't earn that. It was given to you. And you shall certainly persevere and be eternally saved. And finally, only those who persevere until the end have been truly born again. That is another birthmark Of the true believer is that he or she will endure to the end. She will be an overcomer. He will persevere to the end. And so, as God's children, we are actively persevering in our pursuit of the very salvation He intended for us. And as God's children, we are preserved by God for the salvation that He intended. You know this, that the Bible issues numerous calls to persevere in the faith. And this is why this gets confusing at times. People think you can believe in Christ and then later not believe in Christ because we've seen people, haven't we? We know people who have professed faith in Christ who have walked. And we're aware of those texts in Scripture, Hebrews 6, Hebrews 10, which, which warn against apostatizing from the faith. The Bible issues numerous calls to persevere. It warns of falling away. It urges us to continue in the faith, to endure, to overcome, to continue to abide in Christ. And that is certainly one part of the equation. We must do those things. But believer, understand this. If you are in Christ, you will do those things by the power that mightily works within you. You see, we are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, but if we have any honest grasp of our own weaknesses, we are very well aware how dependent we are upon the God who is in us, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. There is a very definite sense, isn't there, as a believer that with man, faithfulness is impossible. But with God, what? All things are possible. At the end of the day, the only reason we can give for why we continue in the faith to the very end is not because we've determined to persevere, but because we have been preserved. We have been, in the biblical language, kept by one greater than ourselves. You see, it is God who is actively working by his divine power to save and to secure us for all eternity. You can take, and God intends for you to take, a deep sigh of relief at all of that. He reminds us that though we work, the work is already finished. Let's look back at verse 6, and I want to begin, we, we have three points this morning, I want to give you the first, and that is we're going to look at the author of the work, the author of the work. Note first that it's a divine work. We're speaking here, by the way, this, this good work of which Paul writes, of the work of salvation. And Paul had been a witness to the good work which God had begun in the Philippians. And he was, in fact, personally involved in it, wasn't he? Providentially, you remember that he was called to go and to preach the gospel in Philippi. He came upon a group of women. He preached the word to them. And Lydia, you remember, had her mind open to understand and to respond even to the very things that Paul was preaching. Paul saw the beginning of God's work in Philippi. You remember that he had been imprisoned and he was divinely able, enabled to, to preach to the jailer who then was also converted. He and his whole household. Years later, Paul now writes and the Philippians are preaching and supporting the gospel. They have been faithful throughout this whole time and so for Paul this idea of God beginning a work was no ethereal vague thing Paul was there to watch it unfold and so he says in verse 6 I am confident of this very thing that he who began a good work in you it's a divine work it's God's doing God is the divine workman He is the one who initiated this work, and we, brothers and sisters, are the recipients of that work. We are the vessels in whom he works. The you here, by the way, is plural. I wanted to to come up front and take that last song that we sang, He Will Hold Us Fast, and I wanted to change it to just that so that we could sing it corporately. It's not just that he's holding me fast, precious as that is. God holds all of his people fast. He who began a good work. Just bring you back to the reminder that this is, this is just simple English, isn't it? You don't have to get all entangled in all sorts of highfalutin theological arguments just Remember your basic elementary school grammar. He who began a good work in you, He acted upon us. Ephesians 1 4, He chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. Ephesians 1 5, He predestined us to adoption as sons. And so Philippians 1.6, he began what? A good work. Where? In you. From beginning to end. Salvation is a work of divine grace. Brothers and sisters, do you understand that at the core of your being? It's never been you. It's never been you. Yes, you experienced the reality of having your eyes open to your sin. Yes, your ears heard the gospel preached. Yes, you made a genuine faith decision to trust in the sacrifice of Christ for your sins. Yes, you have been inclined ever since to love the Lord, to obey the Lord, to follow the Lord. But what you must understand is that God gives us a glimpse in his word behind the scenes, behind the curtain to understand this very thing that the only reason any of that is is so is because God has worked supernaturally in you to accomplish those very things. That's not stuff for ivory towers. That's stuff for shoe leather living out your salvation. That's the kind of stuff that will hold you firm in the storm. That's the kind of stuff that will put steel in your legs so that you're not blown around by every wind of doctrine. That's the kind of stuff that makes strong Christians who can stand firm in their faith Nobody should go home today apart from understanding this reality that all of it, brothers and sisters, is a work of divine grace. Salvation is divine accomplishment. It is not a human achievement. God did not send his son merely to open a door for you to walk through of your own initiative. You'd have never taken that door except that God worked in your heart and soul to make you to to look on Christ and see him as beautiful, to see your sin and to despise it. This is vital to understanding this doctrine. This is vital to understanding why you will persevere to the end, brother and sister, that you will finish the course, that you will fight the good fight to the final bell. He who initiates the work completes the work. God never leaves anything half done. He does not leave things unpolished. He does not do patchy work. God is not a quitter. He never aborts his mission and he never turns back. And if you know the Lord this morning, you can rest assured you will find yourself safe one day in heaven. Because it is a divine work, it is also a Trinitarian work. The Father is the architect of this great salvation. He planned it. He drew it up. He is the God of love and he set his love upon us in eternity past. He chose us not because of anything in us, but because of who God is in and of himself, because of his own sovereign, gracious choice. And he has given us salvation that we did not deserve. He is determined to save us. He is determined to secure us. He has adopted us as his own sons in his Son, And ultimately, he will make us partakers of his very nature, conforming us to the image of Christ. You see, this is the Father's will. This is what he wants to do. And as I said earlier, he has the power to do it. We are a people for his own possession. He delights in us as he delights in his son. And he has planned this great salvation, he has promised it, but beyond that, he preserves it in his people until the very end. Let's look over, go to the left, to the book of John in chapter 6. John chapter 6, and we'll pick up in verse 37. Man, I love that sound. You ever listen to a MacArthur message, and he'll say, turn somewhere, and you'll get five or 6,000 people going through their Bible at the same time? There's nothing like it, because God puts in our hearts, does he not, a love of the truth, and we're so eager to know it and to see it with our own eyes. It's wonderful stuff. Take a look at John chapter 6, verse 37. Note this, all that the Father gives me will come to me. That all, that's all of the people that the Father gives to the Son. We are a gift to the Son. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Well, what is that will, Jesus? This is the will of him who sent me, that all that he has given me I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. I can't read it without being thrilled at the reality of this. He's not speaking here in potentiality. He's speaking of certainty. He loses nobody, and that's referring, of course, to Christ, and we'll see that the Father loses nobody either. But I chose this passage to highlight the Father giving the gift and the will of the Father being that you would, in fact, arrive in heaven safe and sound, delivered by the blood of his Son. Verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Note this again, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Do you see how the Father not only brings us to Christ, but that the Father ensures that we will, through Christ, come all the way to the fruition, to the culmination, to the consummation of that salvation? You'll keep a finger there because we're going to come back to John next, but I want you to look now at Romans chapter 8. I wish that we had time for the whole chapter but I'm going to point out just a bit chapter 8 verse 1 reflecting on all the cross work of Christ Paul writes by the holy spirit therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus we see in verse 38 For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing will be able, note those words, to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. No condemnation, no separation. Great promises. Look over to verse 29. For those whom he, the Father, foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son. You have a destination. And it's been prearranged. So that he would become the firstborn among many brethren, and these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. What's the point? Paul says, what should we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Who is it that can stand up and oppose God in his very purposes from beginning foreknowing us to predestining us to calling us to justifying us to even glorifying us. This text is this, this, this heavy chain that cannot be broken. One thing follows the next all the way to the point that brothers and sisters, you are seated in some strange way even now in Christ in the heavenlies. Your glorification is certain. It's amazing. The Father has drawn the plans and he has broken ground in your soul. And I tell you, beloved, the building will be brought to completion. Well, it's not only a work of the Father, it's also a work of the Son. It is the Son when the Father is the architect, it is the son who accomplishes salvation. It's by the merits of his perfectly righteous life that we ourselves are, are judged righteous in him. We have been declared not guilty, though we are guilty because Christ has imputed righteousness to us. And it's by the merits of his substitutionary death that we are forgiven of our sin. He really did, in fact, stand in your place on that cross, bearing your sins, bearing the wrath of God that was due to you. By his stripes, you are healed. And it is the merits of his infinite worth that enabled Christ to drink down every last ounce of the wrath of God for all of our sins, past, present, and future. There is nothing left in the cup The Son accomplishes our salvation in Himself, and therefore He is the one mediator between God and man. He is, in the words of, of John, our advocate, our defense attorney, the one who stands to plead our cause before the Father. And beyond that, now He serves as our high priest, and Hebrews would tell us that He intercedes for us. How often? continuously day by day before the father therefore he is able to save forever or better translated he's able to save completely entirely to the uttermost all who draw near to god through him since he always lives to make intercession for them christ has guaranteed your salvation I told you we were going back to John chapter 10 and verse 27. The Jewish leadership asked to know whether Christ was in fact the Messiah And Jesus answered them, he said, I told you and you do not believe the works that I do in my father's name. These testify of me, but you do not believe because you are not my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. Note the language again. And I give eternal life to them. He didn't say I will give eternal life to them. He did not say, I hope to give eternal life to the vast majority of them who will be able to to conjure up enough might and energy to actually live faithfully before me all of their days. He said, No, this group of people here, they are my sheep. I know them. They know me. They follow in my footsteps. Not perfectly, but they follow me. And in fact, I give them eternal life. And they will never, ever perish. And no one, there isn't anyone or any power. This is what Paul was getting at at the end there of Romans 8. No one will snatch them out of my hand. No one can take them from me. I don't fumble. My Father who has given them to me, there's the gift again, is greater than all. And no one is able, there's that able language again, to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Christ has us in his grip. The Father has a grip on Christ's hand. There is no one and nothing that can separate believers from their Savior. Jesus gives us eternal life and no one will snatch us out of his hand. Our salvation is a work of the Father and the Son. It is also a work of the Holy Spirit who applies the work of salvation to the believer in the new birth. When we were regenerated, when we were born again, the the, the Spirit applied the redemption that was purchased by Christ to us. And he opened our eyes to the truth. He, 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 he gave us a new life in Christ. We are now motivated by a spirit who is holy. He is the Holy Spirit. No longer by a spirit that is wretched and, and, and twisted. And just as you are secured in the Father and the Son... So our security is sure in the Holy Spirit. He too works us to bring us to heaven. Let's go to Ephesians for this. And I'd encourage you to write these texts down or write them on the inside cover of your Bible. They're so helpful, so encouraging, so uplifting when you are discouraged. Ephesians chapter 1. And verse 13, in him you also, after listening to the message of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, so he's got salvation here in view again, having also believed, note these words, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. Who was given as a pledge. That word sealed and that word pledge, I want you to to understand what those words mean. We were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. You've been sealed by the Holy Spirit. It has the idea of stamping something as one's own. You might think of a brand. Just the ancients used to use this term when they branded cattle or slaves to identify those things that were in fact their own possession. That's the idea here. We are stamped as Christ's. We, we might think of a, of a wax seal and a signet ring used to mark out a letter as being from us maybe you have one of those the main idea though is ownership and belonging and possession and so when Paul uses this imagery he's describing our relationship with the Lord that when we believe he marks us out as his own and then in verse 14 he tells us that the spirit was given to us as a pledge of our inheritance the Arabone, it's it's a commercial term that means earnest money. Christ put a down payment on your life by giving you the Holy Spirit. And He will certainly and surely bring the rest, won't He? Is He ever going to abandon his down payment in somebody? No. the spirit is given if you will for a first installment a down payment a guarantee that the rest of the salvation would in fact be coming it's a guarantee that 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 escrow will close it will finally the deal will be done many have pointed out that this term later became or came to refer to any sort of a pledge and it was used even a form of this word for an engagement ring it was a it was a promise of what is to come the term is used in 2 Corinthians 122 and 55 5 in the same way beloved do you do you see that you can rest If you've entered into his rest, you can rest. God intends you to rest. Have you fallen prey to that mindset that you thought God saved you as a, as a worker because he needed some help? That he saved you because you were good and therefore you better maintain it? You can rest. You must rest. And you can glory. And you can shout for joy because from start to finish, he has done it. He has accomplished your salvation. Think for a second with me on those texts we just went through. Your salvation stands as the result of an eternal choice that cannot be changed. You have been appointed to a destination from which you cannot be diverted. You have received an adoption that cannot be canceled. You have been given as a gift from the Father to the Son that cannot be lost. You are held in a grip which cannot be overcome. You are bound in cords of love, by a chain that cannot be broken, you are marked with a seal that cannot be erased. You are secured by a down payment which cannot be forfeited and you stand to receive an inheritance which cannot be taken. It is reserved in heaven for you. Beloved, your salvation is utterly unassailable because the triune God whose ways are perfect and whose strength cannot be contested or thwarted has set out to redeem a people for himself. Sin and Satan are defeated foes. They will never triumph over Christ's work. Christ will have the fruit of his labor. That soul that on Jesus hath leaned for repose. I'll never what? I'll never desert to its foes. That soul though all hell should endeavor to shake, I will never, never, never forsake. God is not passively hoping that somehow you will endure in your strength to the end of the race. God is not like those people who sit in the local high school stadium waiting for those runners to, to run the western states 100 mile endurance race. Wondering who will in fact have the, the strength and the fortitude to, to tower up those Sierra peaks and make it through the snow and through the blazing heat of the valleys and grind it out over 100 miles so that they can receive a buckle. God is working in us so that we do make it to the peaks and through the valleys so that we receive a crown which is imperishable. Peter put this so plainly. God caused us to be born again and we are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. He has the beginning, God caused it, and he has the end revealed in the last time, this salvation. The whole sweep of redemption history in one verse. Salvation is of a God and you are on the receiving end of a great gift. And yes, you will strive to persevere in trial and temptation. And yes, you will seek to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And you will seek keep your eyes fixed on Christ and to cling to the cross till the end of your days. And all believers fail and frailing as they may be will in fact do this that is part of this great doctrine that, that we will in fact persevere but again beloved as you cling to Christ you must know that God has a white knuckle grip on you and you will not be lost I love the way the London Baptist Confession of Faith I, I, I didn't think I'd have time to deal with the whole thing you can go look it up <laughs> but listen to these words, speaking of believers. Though many storms and floods arise and beat against them, yet they shall never be able to shake them off of that foundation and rock by which, which by faith they are fastened upon. They shall surely be kept by the power of God unto salvation where they shall enjoy their purchased possession." they being engraven upon the palm of his hands and their names having been written in the book of life from all eternity. Believer, your passage is paid and your ticket is punched and your name is on the list and God put it there from before time began, before you even breathed the breath. Praise God who is the author of our salvation and the one who brings it to pass. Well, that was the author of the work. Let's move to our second point, that is the nature of the work. Go back to Philippians. For I'm convinced of this very thing, that he who began, note this, a good work in you a good work in you and we won't dwell long on this point notice that it is a good work he began a good work in you good not because it originates i I should say good because it originates in the very character of god you remember what jesus said why do you call me good no one is good but god alone And because he is accomplishing this work on our behalf, this is a good work. It is a glorious work. He's speaking of salvation, this great work of redemption and reconciliation. We have become beloved new creatures in Christ through faith in him. It's not that we've become a renovated self. It's not that we've become somehow a retrofit. We are a brand new construction by the Spirit of God and we have, have, have participated in this, the good work that God has accomplished through the good news of the gospel. Note also that it is an internal work. It is in you. It is a good work in you. He's not talking about the fact that, that, that God gave you some sort of superficial sponge bath. God did not merely wash out their mouth with soap. He didn't give us a moral facelift, take out a few wrinkles. This was radical surgery. It was invasive surgery. God plunged in and converted us and it was nothing short of a radical heart transplant. He gave you a new heart, he replaced your heart of stone and gave you instead a heart of flesh. He gave you a new spirit and Ezekiel tells us he made his spirit to dwell within us so that now we delight in his statutes and his ordinances. God did a good work, he did a mighty work and he did it in them. And, and it was visible and undeniable that this good work had happened. They had become good trees, which then produced what? Good fruit. We also see in this text the completion of the work, and this is our third point. For I'm confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. He will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. I couldn't help but think as I sat down to write my notes of how many things, how many things, more than you can fit on on my hands for sure, and probably my toes as well. And maybe it's that way with you too. But I have left more things unfinished. I have shorted academic essays that I was required to write. I've double-spaced and gone in 14 font in hopes of shortening the thing. I have painted stuff but not removed the thing that's against the wall so that you paint behind it. I've cheated, I've taken shortcuts, I've left wood unstacked, you name it. I know how to not finish. And I hope you won't take offense at it, but so do you. It it is human. But it is not divine. Aren't you thankful that God did not start this project and then somehow fail to finish? He didn't run out of time. He didn't lose interest. He doesn't quit. Look at the certainty that Paul has of the completion of this work. Right at the very beginning of the verse, he says, I am confident of this very thing. There is a settled assurance in the heart of Paul that God will not fail to finish. He's saying, essentially, here's one thing, Philippians, that I know for sure The good work that I saw God beginning you, he will in fact complete it. Here, the word is translated perfect. Epitaleo, it points to the certainty of accomplishing a stated goal. What can we imply from this? Well, you're not finished yet, right? You're not finished. And neither am I. And each one of us ought to maintain that in our perspective as we consider our brother and sister in Christ. We are still a work in progress, but we will be brought to maturity. We will be completed. I love the Sovereign Grace song. that He says what he completes is what? Completely done. Paul's certain of that. We also see in this verse, the timing of its completion. He says it's until the day of Christ Jesus. In other words, there's gonna be a continuing work in your life and mine until you meet the Lord. And Paul swells at the thought of the day of Christ. We looked at this last week in verse 10 of chapter one. Remember, Paul said, so that you may approve of the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ Jesus. He speaks of it in chapter 2 and verse 16 holding fast the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I'll have reason to glory, because I did not run in vain or toil in vain. The day of Christ returns or refers to the return of Christ for the believer. And as we mentioned last week, it's not to be confused with the day of the Lord, which speaks of, God, of Christ's return to judge the unbeliever. No, Paul here is looking forward and he's looking out and ahead to that day when, when we will stand face to face with Christ. And he's anticipating the future completion of our salvation and that day of reward. Remember, this is not a day that we answer for our sins. Christ answered for our sins. This is a day where we are assessed for our work and there will be reward for obedience and sacrifice and good fruit. And what I want you to see again is just how often the biblical writers had their their minds fixed toward that day. Brother and sister, do you love the Lord's appearing? Do you think about this day? Is your life motivated by this? And here's the other thing, beloved, that I want you to get as you as you read these words. Do you understand that when you stand before Christ in that day, you will stand complete. Finished. Not exposed. Completed. Hear the words of Jude 24. And maybe even practice a little sanctified imagination. Now, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand. In the presence of his glory, are you kidding? He will uphold me in the very presence of his glory. He will and look what the, look what the assessment will bear out. Brother, sister, you will be blameless. And there will be what? Great joy. Now, to him who's able to keep you from stumbling and to make you to stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy. Unthinkable, but factual. Right now, you are a construction zone. And God's project is unfinished. But in that day, you will stand there, completed, finished, and there will be a ribbon-cutting ceremony of sorts in in which the finished work of God will be revealed in your life and the assessment will be this, blameless, let's rejoice. One more passage, look at Philippians chapter 3 and verse 20. It's just so evident everywhere. For our citizenship is in heaven. What's he saying to these? I thought these were citizens of an earthly country. I thought these were citizens of Rome. I thought these were citizens. No. Paul says you need to remember who you are in Christ. Your citizenship is in heaven from which we also eagerly wait for a savior. Do you see that they've got an an eye fixed toward heaven, waiting for Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ, and look what he will do, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of his power that he has even to subject all things to himself. What a day of rejoicing that will be. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 23 and 24. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he who calls you and he will bring it to pass as our music team comes up I'll, I'll let uh, our brother James Boyce have the last word men lack perseverance men start things and drop them As men and women, you and I are always beginning things that we never actually find time to finish, but God is not like that. God never starts anything he does not finish. God perseveres. He has begun something in your life. Have you been born again by the Spirit of God? then you need not fear that you will ever be lost. Your confidence should not be in yourself, neither in your faith nor in your spiritual success of earlier days, but in God. It is he who calls us as Christians. He leads us on in the Christian life and he who will most certainly lead us home. Our Father, truer words have never been spoken. The evil one would certainly shake our souls. And Lord, we see still this flesh that wages war against our souls. And Lord, with an eye to the power of the evil one or an eye to our own strength, surely we would fall away. But Lord, our eyes are fixed on you the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before you endured the cross. Lord, you will bring it to pass. And so we rejoice with joy inexpressible. Lord, our hearts are full at what you've accomplished for us and we give you all praise and glory and honor for you alone are worthy. Help us this day, Lord, to walk in the reality of these things that we might rejoice still the more. And we pray for those believers who are here this morning who are discouraged, whose eyes have been fixed on their own weaknesses. Lord, that you might be the lifter of their head, that you would strengthen them again to come to the cross where every sin is washed and removed as far as east is from west. And Father, if there are any here in our midst this morning who still do not know you, we ask that they too might be given insight to their own sin and might see Christ crucified for sinners and take refuge in him, knowing that you, Lord Jesus, are a a certain Savior, a strong Savior, a mighty Savior. Lord, you always get your man. You will raise us up on the last day. That is a commitment that you have made to us. And so we give you thanks with full hearts